You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. None of our listeners, I'm sure, will disagree with me when I say that we live in divided times, terrifyingly divided times, it sometimes seems, in which Americans are so pulled apart from one another that nothing will ever bring us back together. We've just concluded one of the ugliest presidential elections in our country's history. In a month or so, we'll begin one of the most controversial presidencies, if not the most controversial. How can we navigate a world like this one? My name is Michael Farmer. I'm your host for this episode of Christian Humanist Profiles. Our guest today wants to offer us a roadmap of sorts. John Inazu is a professor of law and political science at Washington University in St. Louis. His important new book is called Confident Pluralism, Surviving and Thriving Through Deep Difference. It's out now from the University of Chicago Press, and I'm delighted it's brought him to Christian Humanist Profiles today. Thanks for coming on the show, John. Oh, it's so great to be with you, Michael. Thanks for the invitation. Sure thing. Well, the introduction uh, talks about what gave you the idea to write the book. And as a professor at a relatively conservative Christian college, I found the exchange between you and your law students, uh, frankly, terrifying. <laughs> um, though I'm glad it resulted in the book, at least. Can you rehearse the class conversations that led you to write Confident Pluralism? Sure. Or, or at least that sort of starts out the, the framing of the introduction, right? This, and it, it seemed to work... Uh, well to set up the stakes of the issue. So this is out of a class that I teach in law and religion. And uh, as the part of that class, we always turn to the establishment clause of the First Amendment, the, what most people think of today as the separation of church and state, and related questions of how much government should be involved with religious private institutions. And there is a series of Supreme Court cases that get into complicated questions of funding of parochial schools by the government. And, and the key case is the 1947 case that involves questions of busing to Catholic schools and whether taxpayer dollars can pay for the buses to take the kids to Catholic schools. And, and part of the reason it's such an interesting question for the purposes of the book and, and the debates that we're having around the country is you encounter a limit principle in either direction. So on the one hand, if you're, if you're comfortable with taxpayer dollars paying for the buses, then you have to ask questions about how far you will go. Will you allow taxpayer dollars to pay for prayer books in the classrooms and maybe even the salaries of priests for religious ceremonies? And, and th that would start to raise questions in one direction. And then in the other direction, if, if you think the buses are not okay, then what else is unacceptable for the government to fund? So there are a series of related questions of, of structures and support uh, from government that all cost money, like crossing guards, for example. Uh, uh, so I, I posed this hypothetical to my class, and I said, suppose we have a city in the United States that determines after some studying that crossing guards actually do make schools safer, and it wants to pay for those guards. Would the Establishment Clause require them to forego paying for the guards at the Catholic school? And, and that would mean that those students would be exposed to more risk and, and perhaps even injury or death. Is that okay? And this usually leads to a pretty productive back and forth, but there was one student uh, one year when I taught the class who sort of dug in and said, absolutely, the, the government should deny the funding uh, of the crossing guards because that's, you know, that's uh, an, an impermissible uh, blending of church and state. And, and this Catholic school, because of its norms, is out of step with mainstream values. And so I pressed further and I said, well, what about 
the fire department. Uh, the fire department costs money, so if the school catches on fire, should the fire department, funded by taxpayer dollars, be allowed to show up to the, put out the fire? And the student said, no, the, the school has made a choice. They can try to put out the fire on their own, but they don't get the benefit of the fire department. And so then I said, well, what about the, the SWAT team? You know, suppose there's a school <laughs> shooter in the building. And uh, does the SWAT team just sort of stand by the side until the shooter's done because the SWAT team costs money too? And the student said, that's right. The school has taken itself outside the boundaries of acceptable society uh, and is not deserving of uh, anything funded by government. And so this is, it's a striking example because it pushes the limit principle question and it, and it reaches a pretty scary solution, one that I don't think many people actually hold, but it, it sets up the stakes of what's at issue and why it's important to draw lines and why we're, when in our political rhetoric we start to say things like uh, this is not part of public policy or accepted norms and when we start denying benefits or putting pressure particularly on private groups and private religious groups that the consequences can go pretty far. So that, that was sort of the story that opens the book. And the lines are very difficult to draw without going into extremism or one kind or the other. That's right, exactly. Well, obviously your argument here depends pretty heavily on the definition of pluralism. Um, what do you mean when you use that word in general and then the term confident pluralism in particular? Right, so two things there. The, the first is merely descriptive. I mean pluralism to say as a fact of the world we have – in our society, deep and incommensurable differences. We, we are over serious matters. We're not likely to reach unity or resolution about these issues. And so it's just a fact of the world that creates a political problem of how we live together. So think of that first part as the descriptive part of pluralism. And then the second part is, what is our response to that fact of pluralism? And we can have a couple different responses. We could say, well, uh, we can't do anything about it. We just have to live in chaos, which is not a very attractive solution. Yeah. <laughs> we, or we could, we could say uh, the, the people with the guns win and majority rules, and we could have a, almost a totalitarian suppression of difference. And, you know, we've had, had times in our country where we've done that, and certainly other regimes have taken that route. That's also pretty unattractive, though, to most Americans. And so the third possibility, I think, is the possibility of pluralism as a political solution, which is to say that we've got to figure out a way to live with and acknowledge these differences to coexist with them. And that's going to take a lot of hard work, but it's at least a political possibility. Um, I should also say that, that the invocation of pluralism, particularly with some Christian audiences, immediately draws a concern about uh, a collapse into relativism. In other words, if you take seriously the fact of our differences and if you recognize that different people are going to hold uh, very different, deep, important beliefs, uh, then you might go down the path that gets you to the point of suggesting there is no truth, it's all relativism, you know, many beliefs and they're all good. And that's not at all the kind of pluralism that I'm interested in exploring, and I don't think that's compatible with Christian faith or theology. Uh, but it does require a kind of care in thinking about the term pluralism because there are versions of the argument that do go to relativism. Uh, what connection do you see between the idea of pluralism and maybe it's kind of an, even an old-fashioned term now, but multiculturalism? Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> you know, it is a multiculturalism has been around for a long time as a as a term in the academy and in, in some uh, political theory and 
so I think there is a relationship, uh, and, and part of the, the benefits of multiculturalism are, were a recognition of how deep cultural structures and beliefs uh, weren't just sort of propositions on a piece of paper, but they were lived experiences, and that those, when they came together, had quite a few points of contention and, and to some extent, an inability to translate across different cultures. And so I think there's value in all of that. Uh, there's a sense in which part of multiculturalism wanted to validate as just normatively good pretty much everything that was out there. And the kind of pluralism that I'm arguing for does not go that far. And, uh, and I think that's actually a, a consequence of the reality of our differences. So when we think seriously about the differences we have, these are not just differences over, you know, potato, potato, or what kind of music you like and what kind of music I like. These are differences over profound moral matters. And for someone to hold a different view of the world or a different view of a particular issue actually has very high stakes. And it means that we have to work very hard at, at being clear in, in terms of why certain views are wrong or evil or harmful. Uh, but pluralism means we have to live with the people who hold those views. And so there's a there's an important challenge of trying to distinguish between people and the beliefs they hold and, and focusing on a respect for people, even when we acknowledge candidly that, that the beliefs or some of the beliefs they hold are not compatible with our visions of morality or goodness or, or truth. We, we protect them even as we argue with them. That's right. Yeah. And, and we look for points of commonality. So it turns out with some very rare exceptions, and, and there are exceptions out there, people who have sort of lived into such a state of depravity, you know, think of sort of the stereotypical neo-Nazi who it's going to be very hard to find points of agreement with a neo-Nazi. But most people who hold contested views that disagree with ours actually still have quite a bit of overlap in the human experience and even shared political concerns and care of neighbor and city. And when we focus on those points of commonality, it's a way of tempering the relational distance we would otherwise have around profound moral differences. Well, and it helps that we're all members of multiple groups. You know, if we were all summed up by one group we were a member of, it'd be very difficult to talk across. But as it is, if if you're a liberal and you have a conservative uh, who, who you know, you probably belong to several other groups that you're both a member of. And so there is a there there are points at which we can talk to almost everybody, I would think. Well, that's interesting. I, I think the intuition you said is right. I worry increasingly whether this plays out in practice. So in terms of uh, our self-segregation around political lines, certainly around class lines, around racial lines. And in, in fact, maybe many of us don't have those overlapping networks or friendships, which is, is sort of adding to the problem that we're experiencing. You know, the kind of curated identity you get with social media. Right. What would you say are the biggest forces besides social media <laughs> that, <laughs> threaten, that threaten pluralism in 2016, 2017? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I think it's you're right to start with social media because that is such a, a big one and it's such a hard nut to crack. And the more we see sort of in the last few weeks, we've been hearing lots about fake news and these sorts of things. And fake news is actually growing both on the left and the right. Uh, the more people are living into actual different realities of our shared experience, the harder it's going to be to figure out any of this. So I, have, I do have deep concerns about 
social media. I think uh, I think the polarization of our political parties, particularly as evidence in this last election, is exacerbating our efforts toward living together in a pluralistic community. I think there are plenty of people who just felt unrepresented by either political party in this campaign. And you saw instances uh, of both parties just pushing further to the extreme rather than trying to find a kind of middle ground or, or to signal that there is there was a kind of a unified effort. And, and so that's a, that's a problem. And then I think uh, I mentioned it just a minute ago, but I think geography really is ge our geographical divisions are increasingly difficult. And we can think about that on sort of a, a you know, a coastal versus heartland perspective, but also in terms of who lives in cities and who doesn't, who shows up at campuses like yours or mine, who teaches at those places. And so our geographical and social divides are really hindering this ability to put this theory into practice. I was going to ask how how can we possibly surmount these things, but I think maybe the book gives us some ideas for that. So let's um, let's go further into it. Um, you suggest that the key to a confident pluralism is an understanding of our unity, which is manifested in a shared set of commitments, practical commitments on the one hand, constitutional commitments on the other. Our practical commitments are easy enough to see, I think. I think most people agree we need highways, we need police forces, we need sewage systems, and that the government should play some role in funding those things. Our shared constitutional commitments may be a little more difficult to suss out, so I want to go through those relatively slowly. The first one you mentioned is our shared commitment to individual rights. And it seems to me that while most Americans would probably agree we all have individual rights, we disagree about the limits of them. Does that disagreement matter? Oh, absolutely. And I think you're right to point that out. Um, I do want to, I mean, when I talk about unity, I use the, the phrase modest unity. And I really want to emphasize the modest part there, that this is not a very thick vision of what might hold us together. This is a, a pretty minimalist vision I think it's also a pragmatic one. I think it's one that we could actually attain. Uh, and so when I talk about a, a general consensus around the importance of individual rights, I think there is room for a divergence about how far those rights extend. But let me signal a couple of worrisome trends around even the notion of individual rights. There was a Pew study just a couple of months ago that surveyed millennials, and I think it was something like 40% of millennials said that uh, offensive speech should be banned by the government. This is sort of, a, this is incompatible with really any contemporary understanding of the First Amendment's free speech right, yet there's a growing sense, you know, maybe out there among average citizens that free speech doesn't matter as much as maybe a previous generations thought that it did. Or What a, what a wonderfully stupid thing to say, too, because you know they all have a particular sort of speech in mind, not understanding that half the things they say are going to be offensive to somebody. Well, this, yeah, this is the problem, right? The, the, the category of offensive speech is just incapable of being defined without raw political power. So that's, that's right. And, and one's, one person's offensive speech is the other person's cherished value, and that's why we have the First Amendment in the first place. But it's worrisome when when we see these trends. Another one is in the area of religious freedom and the free exercise of religion, another very important individual right. And as, you know, as, as many of us know, in the last couple of years, particularly at the state level legislative battlegrounds, 
the phrase religious liberty or religious freedom is now put in scare quotes, mm-hmm. signaling, you know, questioning whether the right is even there in the first place or whether it's being used appropriately. And that's quite a different question than asking whether a religious freedom claim ends up prevailing. This is a question of whether there's even religious freedom there or whether it's just a, a mask for bigotry or something else. And so I think it's another uh, maybe ominous sign of a, a loss of the importance of recognizing the need for individual rights. And so part of this is you know, reminding people that we really do still need civics lessons and we can't assume that just because a previous generation understood and lived out the First Amendment or individual rights norms that that's going to be automatically there in the present day. One other trend I think Christian intellectuals have been talking about for a few years is a shift from talking about freedom of religion to talking about freedom of worship. So in other words, we're allowed to go to whatever church, whatever mosque, whatever temple we want to, but we're not allowed absolute freedom of religion outside the doors of those establishments. Do you think that's a meaningful shift? If it succeeds, it's very meaningful, and it's very deliberate on the part of people who are trying to craft that shift. It it seems there are arguments historically that some people understood free exercise to be limited to worship, but that would be the narrowest sense of the right. And we have a pretty strong record of cases since then that have expanded or understood the right to be more than just worship. I think also that moved linguistically, the shift from religion to worship, or the exercise of religion to worship is also representative of a deficient understanding of faith and religious practice by some people who are setting laws and policies. And so the example that comes to mind here is I think it was in Indiana where the state regulatory agency wanted wanted to say that um, religious protections would apply to churches as long as they were focusing only on their internal congregants in worship. But if they open the worship service up to outsiders, then they would lose the protections. And this this proposal was shot down. But what's intriguing about it is it misses a fundamental theological view of many Christian denominations, which is one of the reasons you hold churches precisely to have outsiders come in, right? This element of evangelism and witness and the, the sense that uh, a narrow understanding of worship was not even capacious enough to encompass inv- evangelism, I think, is representative of just a lack of awareness of what people of faith actually do when they get together. Yeah, in addition to the civics lesson, we've got to have some basic religious literacy lessons. Oh, that's re- you know, that's really important. And I'm, I'm grateful in, in the mainstream media, there are some very smart religion reporters uh, Michelle Borstein and Sarah Bailey at the Washington Post and Lori Goodstein at the New York Times and others who, who actually do take the time to delve into the intricacies of religious faith and uh, try to treat religious believers as more than anthropological experiments. Uh, and that matters to good reporting and that matters to translating concepts to people who aren't of faith. And so I think the the significance of having people who take the time to care and also are incentivized to, to, to understand fully what's going on is, is very important. Um, returning to the, the modest unity, you give us two premises of it. Uh, you call them the inclusion premise and the dissent premise. 
And both of those, it seems to me, have been under attack in the last decade or so, from conservatives who talk about the real America, to liberals who silence free speech on college campuses, to members of the Trump administration who talk about a national Muslim registry and point to Japanese internment camps as uh, as historical precedent for that. That was uh, you, you talk about the internment camps in your book, and I, I thought, wow, that's certainly a, that's certainly a hot topic now. Anyway, why do we need inclusion and dissent so much, and how far should we be willing to follow those premises? When you when I uh, when I finished the book, which was well before the even the primary season, uh, as I was walking through some historical examples, including the Japanese internment, and I included in the book because my own family was interned in the camps. My father was born there. Uh, I, I used it. I wrote it as a historical example with the assumption that we all at least agreed that that was out of bounds. And now in the last few months, even that's been called into question. So yeah. it's pretty striking how, uh, again, the need to reinforce over and over again that even our most basic uh, shared agreements and our most our most modest unity cannot just be taken for granted. Um, and so I, I think both of these points, inclusion and dissent, are extremely important on, on inclusion, the challenge here is recognizing that with with a growing awareness of the pluralism that actually exists, that we do have far greater differences than some people previously imagined or were aware of, that we then need to figure out politically and otherwise how to expand our notion of community and political citizenship to the people around us. And that means, among other things, welcoming different voices into the conversations that shape policy and shape decisions about who we are as a country. So think about back to the founding when it was mostly white Protestant men who were making those decisions and how, how different we are today as a country and how many different voices, uh, rightly so, are now in the equation. Many of those voices were also around at the founding they just weren't being listened to, right? So we've done a better job of recognizing those voices. But in doing so, that also puts pressure on the kind of coherence or consensus that we can assume. When when people who all sort of live and think in similar ways are the only ones in the room, it's far easier to draw or find consensus. And that political project is made much harder by the reality of our differences. Uh, but that means, I think, all the more that we need to pursue this vision of inclusion and then related to that, and actually I think part and parcel is the understanding of dissent, that as we establish norms for the political community and as we uh, move forward as a country, that we recognize from experience and from the laws that we have and, and just from a basic understanding of human nature, that the people in power, whoever they are, are often quick to assume that they are unequivocally correct and that people should not disagree with them. And so the built-in need for dissent and meaningful protections for dissent, even from majoritarian norms, is extremely important. And we've seen in our own country's history over and over again the value of protecting small, unpopular, and minority groups and the consequences that we confront when we fail to do so. Would you, what would you say the limits to dissent? Because, I mean... Uh, should we should we tolerate, for example, people dissenting against the notion that inclusion is a principle? <laughs> right, right. So the, the, there are going to be practical limits to any of these principles, and and I think I mentioned in the book a couple, 
you, you can always identify the practical limit when it comes to the cult of human sacrifice, right? We're not going right. to, uh, <laughs> we're not going to include that cult into our consensus of citizenship, and we're not going to allow that cult to dissent. Although, who knows anymore? If people are talking about internment camps, can can human sacrifice <laughs> be be far behind? I, I hope we're still a couple steps away from that. Um, but but I, I have been surprised more than once in the past couple of months. That's for sure. Uh, but so um, the. The, the limits, though, I think dissent necessarily does have to encompass at least the ability to voice disagreement with the inclusion principle. Uh, now, that, that's a tricky line, so it would, would not be wise or I don't think in keeping step with the vision that I'm trying to cast here to allow a dissenting view that rejects inclusion to hold enough political power actually to manifest in the suppression of, of inclusion. But I think you have to have the ability for, say, separatist groups to exist and to voice different political views. You have to have uh, the capacity for certain groups to opt out of the political consensus altogether. So if you if you have a sectarian group that just wants to go do its own thing and uh, not cause violence to neighbors around it, then you have to, I think, allow that group to opt out of the political project to, to dissent to that degree. And then the gamble, and it's a contingent gamble, but the gamble you have to take is that there are enough people still drawn to the vision of unity and still drawn to the idea of working together that you can move the political project forward. So at some point, if everyone opts out, then you don't have a politics. But but prior to that point, you have to, I think, allow for some of that even extreme opting out at the margins. And this is where the confidence and confident pluralism comes from. We're confident in our unity, modest though it be, and so we can allow dissent from it. Right. I mean, enough of us, enough of us here have to maintain a confidence in this particular political project. We have to be confident enough in the law and in the Constitution and in the way the government is structured. That doesn't mean we don't critique it, and it doesn't mean we aren't uh, dissatisfied with it, but it does mean we've got to believe in it enough to carry it forward. And that's one part of the confidence. And then the other part is is really a confidence in our own beliefs in this very contested and pluralistic society, that if we, we truly think that we're living our lives into beliefs that matter and are real and are true, then we ought to be among the people most eager to step into the society around us that disagrees to model and to explain why we, in fact, have the better answers and the better approach to the human experience. Argument doesn't seem to be a, a core, core value of our culture uh, currently, though. There's a, there's a lot more screaming than argument. Yeah, I mean, there's screaming and there there's a lot of emotive response. Uh, this is true really across the political spectrum. So the ang- anger and rage is part of it, but it's also a kind of manipulation that is activated, you know, by a really nice song or a great television show or, uh, uh, you know, even a church that makes you feel really good. These sorts of things that are arguably not tied either to reason or in some cases even to a genuine representation of human relationships, uh, but they have a, a pretty significant draw on the way people reach decisions. And, and that's a challenge, right? So I need to, we and I need to think about the limits of 
rational argument and the place of rational argument among among a host of other kinds of engaging with each other. And um, it's interesting because actually I do think that there's a place for emotivism in discourse. And so part of me resists the the kind of move that wants to say let's reduce everything to rational discourse and uh, well there's no such thing right i mean rational discourse is always within right yes yeah so there's that point there's it's a fair point that there is no sort of big r big d rational discourse uh, but it's also i think important to allow for symbolic expressive and emotive dimensions to relating to one another. So I, I think actually something like a protest can be a really important part of civic engagement. And maybe that doesn't have uh, an argument attached to it, but it has a symbolic expressive component or it has a, a show of solidarity and those sorts of things I think can be very important to politics as well. Though it's so easy to misuse, probably easier to misuse the emotive stuff than argument that attempts to be rational on some level. It seems that way, yeah. It's, and partly because we respond so quickly to emotive cues, and uh, too often, what creates or stirs anger or hurt or fear in us causes us to respond with equal emotion as opposed to something uh, more restrained. And that doesn't seem to be a, a useful way forward. Have you noticed this phenomenon online, mostly and still mostly among? liberals, it hasn't yet trickled down to conservatives, as far as I can tell, of uh, saying when somebody disagrees with you that they're gaslighting you? Have you have you noticed this? Uh, you know, I've seen it here and there, but I, I, not enough to, to speak coherently on it. What's, what does it uh, convey? Or... Well, to, to me, that is that is the ultimate flight from from reason it's saying it's saying if you refuse to if you refuse to tell me what i already know you're not only wrong you're like trying to psychologically manipulate me i mean gaslighting has an actual psychological meaning right it's where you're attempting to to tell somebody something they know to be true is not true right um right. So, if we, so if we're using this word to mean anytime somebody anytime somebody interprets facts differently that I interpret facts. That seems to me so dangerous. Right. Although, you know, there's a, I think there's an analog here uh, with especially some conservative and more fundamentalist religious belief uh, among Protestants, especially, which is a tendency uh, for sure in past eras, but still out there today of some people to, to maintain almost a fundamentalist posture where the answer to any challenge or any question is just, no, that's not right, because, right, this is what Scripture says, for example, yeah. and the yeah. story. And that, right, that has a kind of similar... As uh, if that didn't need to be interpreted, as if you right, had some right. sort of innocent right. access to it. Now, that, I didn't think about that as being the, the same sort of motion. I, I like that. Well, most Americans have probably thought about freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and the free press, but very few of us, I think, have thought about freedom of assembly, which is also guaranteed to us by the First Amendment. Your book suggests that freedom of assembly is absolutely foundational to our country and that it's under attack. What, what is the threat to freedom of assembly? Yeah, so maybe I'll start by backing up just a little bit and explaining why I think most of us don't think about the right of assembly and the First Amendment. I wrote my first book, uh, more of a historical and constitutional examination of the right of assembly and did quite a bit of historical 
and constitutional work around that right. And strikingly, some of the things that emerged out of my research uh, were the ways in which it was so central and so important to the founders in the debates over the Bill of Rights. Assembly was featured prominently. There were there were efforts to suggest that we didn't need it, and there were stronger efforts to say, no, assembly is absolutely essential to guaranteeing other rights, and it's essential to religious worship and other parts of being a citizen and being protected from government. And then uh, what happened, I think, the best I can tell, is that the text of the First Amendment eventually uh, spoke of the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. And over time, that idea of assembly became conflated or attached to petition, so that the text started to read to a number of judges and lawyers and legal scholars as assembly for the purposes of petitioning. So in other words, the only scope of the right would be is if you gathered you know, your friends or your political allies in order to petition the government, then the right would attach, but there would be no other uh, purpose or scope of the right. And that that's historically inaccurate. It's constitutionally inaccurate, but it had a lot of traction for several generations in this country. And so part of what I'm trying to do is reintroduce the historical and constitutional grounds for the right of assembly and to say, actually, uh, from the beginning of our country and certainly still today, the need to protect the people to assemble, the need for them to gather in groups of their own choosing and on their own terms, uh, both physically and before physical gatherings, so the need to communicate with one another. This is really, when you think about it, the only right in the First Amendment that is inherently relational. It requires at least two people to assemble. You can you can speak on your own, you can practice religion on your own, you can even uh, you know run a press on your own, but you, you cannot assemble without at least one other human being. And so the relational dimension of assembly built into that right it remains essential to the way that we exist in society, and yet it's, it's really understudied and, and under-acknowledged. In Democracy in America, uh, Alexei de Tocqueville says that one of the hallmarks of American democracy is the degree to which our citizens are involved with their local government. Uh, I found myself thinking about Tocqueville in your chapter about public forums, which you typify using the uh, television show Parks and Rec, which I think I love as much as you do. Uh, what, what can Parks and Rec teach us about public spaces, and what do we stand to lose when those public spaces are converted into private spaces? Well, one of the, one of the many things I love about Parks and Rec is how they are so frequently introducing run-of-the-mill, ordinary government and civic practices uh, into the content of the show usually in a way that's pretty funny or absurd in a way that we dismiss. But through the course of that series, the public forum became one of the important highlighted government practices. And so you would have Leslie Nope and the other people of the Parks and Rec Department, you know, plan a meeting for citizens to come together and talk <laughs> about a contested issue. And so they'd, they'd set up the chairs in the auditorium. And usually these meetings in the television show would be over – such trivial issues that we could all laugh at them. Uh, but w what I loved about the show, and I was so glad that they focused on it, is that the actual mechanics of what they highlighted and what they expressed in the narrative uh, was the, the public forum and how it is such an essential part of 
our democracy, of our local government, and of the way that we do things. And that the idea that we insist the government not only provides spaces, but also funds spaces and maintains spaces for us as citizens, as ordinary unelected citizens, to come together and talk about issues. Sometimes they're very targeted issues uh, in a town hall meeting or that sort of thing. And sometimes they're just whatever's on our mind. If we want to be in the city park or on the public sidewalk, we can, we can sing, we can protest, uh, we can speak, we can just exist. And there are some regulations around this and some limits, but for the most part, the idea is we get to say and express on our own terms what we think uh, in the public forum, and that's a government space uh, to do so. And it's it's such an important concept, but yet another one I think that is not maybe on too many people's minds. Well, and what's great about that show is it shows the people of Pawnee to be continually foolish and venal, and yet Leslie continues to provide them that space. Like it's it's essential to the life of that town, even though the people misuse it almost every time they get a public forum. That's right. You know, and in doing so, it is enacting a kind of politics, as imperfect as it is, right? It's actually bringing people together to work forward on the process and the frustrations and the possibilities of shared governance. Uh, and, and, I, and, and to your point, in spite of or, or, or even on top of all of the frustrations that it causes. I wonder 10 years from now if somebody will, will uh, do some sort of study about the effect of that show on local government. Because I, I bet, I bet it, has, it has contributed to an increased interest in public forums. I hope that's right. I mean, I know that uh, Russell Moore and other people are also uh, big fans of the show. And so, you know, people with prominent platforms can talk about why uh, it's important in terms of the the ideas that it conveys. And really part of that show, too, since we're on it, I think I do think it's important to highlight the government practices. But it also just highlights how ordinary people can come together to do ordinary things that over time actually become quite extraordinary. So the fact that you can uh, work on a bunch of very small projects, many of them right, overtly funny for purposes of the show, but still projects that over time build a community. And uh, and that's a real takeaway from the show that I think is, is a gift in terms of what it, what it gives its audience. And one, it shows a place, again, returning to dissent, even for people who don't particularly believe in government, yeah, no, that's right, right. There we, there's the uh, even the libertarian uh, boss Ron Swanson has a role to play in the community that's formed, and and there's a I think there's a physicality and a proximity of the community that matters, and so in an era where so much increasingly is on social media and geographically dispersed, here you have an example of a of a community that actually forms around neighbors, right? And it's, it's sometimes it's zero sum. So what one neighbor builds on his property affects adversely the other neighbor's property. And that's how people have actually had to live together for quite some time. And we tend to forget that sometimes when we go into this amorphous social media space without actual physical boundaries where everything is uh, in some ways unlimited in terms of what you can say or write or build virtually, uh, and then we're reminded by the physicality of our real living constraints that we have to figure out how to work together with the people immediately around us. 
So everybody go to your town council meeting. Well, yeah, I think that's one takeaway for sure. Yorgi, if you if we want pluralism to exist, we're going to have to fund it, and that that should extend even to funding modes of pluralism that we disagree with. And just in case, uh, just in case anybody was worried that you wouldn't go as far as you could with this, you say that the government shouldn't have removed tax exemption status from Bob Jones University, even in the face of that school's racial discrimination. To play devil's advocate for a moment, and remember I am at a uh, conservative Christian school, <laughs> although we don't have any kind of racial discrimination, at least not on the books. Um, why should my tax dollars go to pay for an institution that is so fundamentally against mainstream American values? Sure. So let me let me qualify or reinterpret my claim just a little bit here in, um, in, in the interest of self-preservation. What I, what I say in the book and what I, what I think is right is that the – legal reasoning of the Bob Jones decision. This is the 1983 Supreme Court decision that upheld the denial of tax-exempt status to Bob Jones University for its racially discriminatory policies, that the legal reasoning of that decision is incorrect. Now, I actually think that in 1983, a generation away from Brown against Board of Education, and in a case that involved not only Bob Jones, but also some private secondary schools, in the South, I think the outcome that says "too bad, Bob Jones, you lose" is the right outcome. Now, that's not a that's not a jurisprudentially neat solution, but it's one that acknowledges and affirms the outcome of Bob Jones of the decision that says the school loses its tax exemption. Now, I think the more interesting and maybe contested question to, would be the one we might ask today. So, in 2016. Bob Jones no longer has a racially discriminatory policy, but let's let's assume that it did. Should it be eligible for tax exempt status? And here, I think the answer might be yes. And the reason is, uh, once we're outside of the very unique political and social circumstances of Jim Crow and uh, the the reaction to Brown against Board and the segregation in private schools, uh, singularly oppressive of African Americans. Once we're outside of that context we have a a different policy question to ask. And I think that policy question is, given the way that we, the United States, have structured tax-exempt status, and I I analogize it in the book to something like a public forum, where if essentially the government has created this space, it's it's not a physical space, but it's a, think of it as a space where there's a lot of money from the government that goes to fund private, charitable, religious, and educational activities and institutions, uh, given that structure, it becomes very hard to draw lines against groups that we don't like. Uh, So it ends up that the federal government, through its tax exemption, benefits all kinds of groups, including groups that are uh, diametrically opposed to one another, including groups that you would find uh, immoral and I would find immoral, and we might disagree on our assessments of certain groups, and certainly if we expanded our circle of discussion, we'd find uh, quite extensive disagreement over what counts as good or in furtherance of public policy or for the common welfare. And yet the way that this ends up in the actual practice of the tax-exempt structure, we just say pretty much everything under the sun comes in. And once we've made that move, once we've functionally created something like a public forum for ideas to generate on their own terms by private groups and individuals, then it becomes very dangerous, I think, to impose a kind of orthodoxy around the boundaries of certain beliefs or 
accepted possibilities. And we can we can see this almost intuitively because one you know just just make your own list of I don't know take five or ten groups that are presently tax exempt that you just think are evil and shouldn't uh, warrant that exemption. It would not be hard to come up with that list and, and then ask yourself you know if you came to power someday would you just uh, would you just purge those groups from funding or would you have a stronger commitment to uh, the beliefs and practices that you don't like. And that's the question on the table, I think, here with the tax exemption. Do you think there's likely to be a purging of tax-exempt statuses? Well, this was, you know, this was the discussion after the same-sex marriage decision in Obergefell, particularly related to institutions like conservative religious colleges and universities. I think that that particular question is probably uh, sidelined a bit given Trump's victory, but it's not going away. I think it'll be back uh, in a few years, if not sooner. And they, I don't know what the answer to that question is, but it's a kind, it's the kind of policy discussion that we're going to have to have. The, the Bob Jones decision is no longer just a historical relic because of the way uh, in which that argument has been used in the culture wars questions over gay rights uh, versus religious freedom, and that's that's there to stay, I think. Oh, and already this year there was the bill in California, although it was uh, it was withdrawn before they could vote on it. Right. So this is SB one one four six in in the California legislature that was attempting to deny grant funding to uh, religious colleges and universities that did not comply with California's anti-discrimination norms pertaining both to sexual orientation and gender identity. Now, what's interesting in that case is I, I think the funding mechanism is actually functionally different than something like a public forum kind of funding. So these are discretionary grants that the state of California uh, gives to low-income families in order to help kids go to college. And there's really no sort of welcoming of all viewpoints or ideas. It's just a it's a line item grant from the legislature. And there, I think the kind of argument I'm making in the book doesn't really extend as far as something like the, the grant mechanism in California. And then adding to the problem in California is there's really no meaningful religious freedom protection, either at the state or federal level that would come into play. So that, that scenario you mentioned, that policy move in the California legislature, which, again, I think is likely to uh, be seen in the coming years, uh, it, it's very difficult to conceive of any legal response to that move. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens, how many, how many colleges will choose to be shut down over the gay marriage issue. I would hope not that many. You, you know, I just maybe that's just a self-preservation talking. And, and if in a generation we'll see this as a weird bump that, that Christian colleges resisted this, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see what happens. Right. I mean, it's, it, I think it's an open question. I, I also, though, I wouldn't assume the conclusion that says they will actually be faced with that consequence. I think there is still to be had an important public policy discussion, which is also a legal discussion, about whether this analogy to Bob Jones really is the right one. And so... In, in my view, it's not. In my view, Bob Jones and the, que the question of racial discrimination in education uh, against African Americans is singularly unique in our country. And this is why we need arguments that say, uh, for the most part, those kinds of exceptions ought to be quite rare and extremely well justified. It's not clear to me, absent 
evidence that I haven't yet seen about loss of market opportunity or other sorts of external harms for gay and lesbian students that we have anything close to the same policy set of concerns here. Uh, the, the, the stranglehold on African Americans in the Jim Crow South, like, pr particularly perpetuated in the context of education, is just not immediately analogous to anything else we've seen in this country. Well, the second half of your book goes through a series of personal and public practices that are going to be necessary if we want to foster confident pluralism. I think what we're talking about here are essentially virtues in the Alistair McIntyre sense of that word, human behaviors that allow for the continued existence of beneficial human institutions. And the three big virtues for confident pluralism are tolerance, humility, and patience. And all of those are built on this recognition that our worldviews are not objective or value neutral. They're always contextual. They're always disputed. How can we learn to be more tolerant, humble, and patient if these are the things we need to be? Yeah, it's a great question. And let me actually use it to go back to the choice of the word aspirations instead of virtues. Uh, I, I originally, in the first chapter of this book, was talking about virtues. And then because I am pretty thoroughly McIntyrean about all of this stuff, I realized that virtues have to have practices and traditions and institutions to sustain and form them in the first instance. And I actually I'm not all that optimistic that we have those currently in this country. Well, it's hard to have those under pluralism. Well, I, yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I think actually, I think you could have something that becomes uh, close to a virtue or at least a shared habit that could be motivated by very different traditions and certainly different institutions. And I think that's possible. And I think there's that possibility with the aspirations that I set out in tolerance, humility, and patience uh, think of almost a kind of Rawlsian overlapping consensus, although I don't love the Rawlsian move, but the idea that we would have different justifications and views for coming to similar sorts of social practices. I think that possibility is there. I'm just not sure we have enough functional and healthy institutions right now to make that happen. And so I, I instead went with the word aspirations and not virtues, and I've had a running dialogue now with Jamie Smith and others who are I think rightly pressing me on this question, right? And I, and so part of my answer is, uh, yes, only aspirations at this point. But aspirations at some point have got to become virtues and practices. Aspirations by themselves cannot sustain a political project over time. And so the real concern here is, what are the ways, and what are the institutions, and what are the habits in society where we can begin to strengthen? aspirations that may hopefully one day become virtues. Uh, and that's, a, that's a, I think, one of the most important questions politically we have before us right now. I, I, I hope that our churches can be those kinds of institutions, but it's not clear to me uh, that that's, a, that's a, a given at this point. I hope that the university of all places could be that, a, a place where we can foster habits uh, across deep differences and uh, philosophical perspectives divergent with one another where we can actually treat each other kindly and work to be tolerant, humble, and patient in our relationships with each other. It seems, it seems that if we can't do that in the university, then we're really in trouble, right? Because where else do people have the time and proximity to have these kinds of discussions? And the university is such a contested area right now. 
Oh I, yeah. I, I mean, right. it, it's so illiberal. At least if you believe there. I mean, I I I exist out in, you know, out out in the the boondocks here. So I'm not. I'm really not sure what major universities what the what the attitude is there anymore except what i read in um in news reports and and you, you know you worry about the future of the university if it's as, as illiberal as they as they say it is oh there are some there are some real concerns at a lot of i think especially elite institutions and um and some of them are the concerns you hinted at and then i think there are other concerns about financial pressures mm-hmm. and athletic pressures and, and real questions about even fundamental purpose uh, questions of what, what the university is for and what it does. I'm actually, I'll be in Thursday in Charlottesville, Virginia with Stanley Harawas, who I think you've had on this show before. We have, yeah. And some other folks to talk about this question, the precise question of the intersection of confident pluralism and the university. And I'm looking forward to trying to press some of these questions a little more deeply. Yeah, and I, I wonder if there is a case to be made for the smaller college um, on these grounds that, that maybe maybe it's places like mine where you're actually going to encounter ideological difference of a sort. I mean, obviously, everybody at my school has a certain set of beliefs that they have to have to teach here, to go here. And yet, like, I feel like I feel like I know more liberals and more conservatives than most liberals do and most conservatives do. Yeah, no, I think I think uh, a bunch of friends who are in the CCCU circles, for example, and I do think there's a case to be made that in a number of faith-based schools and institutions, the common ground that brings people together actually allows for a greater divergence of different perspectives. And there are, there are trade-offs, of course, right? You're going to oh, have absolutely. a certain sort of limitation on who shows up and who gets hired. But, uh, but there is, a, I think, an opportunity for a greater diversity. And when it comes especially to political diversity, it seems clear that, again, at the, the most elite secular institutions, there's very little political or ideological diversity. And that's a problem that I think many people are starting to recognize uh, more and more. The, the question is what to do about it. And it's not, it's not apparent that there's a great answer. Yeah, because you don't want to do just hire, hiring of token conservatives. Right. Now, that doesn't <laughs> usually work out well. Right. And it's, you know, I think most conservatives would probably be against that because uh, it's, it's affirmative action, essentially. Don't you think yeah. part of the problem here, too, is that at this point in American history, we're so skeptical of institutions? Oh, I think that's a huge problem. I think uh, I've been thinking lately about the connection between institutions and authority, and so we have a weakening. When you think about the major institutions in American society, say, a generation or two ago, the major media institutions, you had the big three networks and the, the big papers, the major educational institutions and respected institutional leaders from different segments of the academy, the church and the Billy Graham kinds of figures, uh, at some point even trusted people in Hollywood and the media, you know, people who sort of inspired us across differences and that sort of thing, those are all gone, right? There are no, there are very few truly national authority figures in any of these sectors anymore. And there's a correlative weakening of institutions. So there is, there's a concern that many churches and denominations are facing right now about institutional legitimacy and practical questions about financial resources and how you pay the 
uh, salaries and insure the building. But those same kinds of questions are being asked at the New York Times and at Harvard and all kinds of other non-religious places as this broader challenge, not just to institutions, but also to the nature of authority attached to institutions continues to emerge. And then it's, in its place, we have right social media, where the more Twitter followers you have, suddenly the more authority you purportedly have. And these are these are major epistemic and political challenges that I don't think anyone's really figured out yet. And then you have the the people who I think terrifyingly voted for Trump because they wanted to upend the system. They, they, yeah. and, and to me, like I, the, the sense in which I'm conservative is that I'm not sure a revolution is a great idea unless you know what you're going to have on the other side of it and it's better than what you already have. And, and so that that move just terrified me. Yeah, I was talking with someone who was very convinced that he was voting for Trump, and he analogized it to a prison uh, riot where you've just got to break out of the prison. And, and my pushback to him was, you, you better figure out how many how many people are going to die in the riot before you justify that move. And I do, uh, I think we've got a lot of unanswered questions about how this process moves forward. And the, the whole notion of breaking things or disrupting the system is is not very well thought out unless there's a plan that ensures that it's done peacefully and with stability and it's not at all clear to me we have that plan well i'm not sure if this book came out at the exact right moment or if it was written for a world that turned out not to exist many <laughs> many of my christian colleagues uh, college colleagues that's hard to say were talking about their hopes that hillary clinton would govern in a spirit of confident pluralism at least in regards to religious liberties and stuff like that. I'm not sure I've heard anyone express a hope like that for Donald Trump. The best I've heard is that he won't govern as an absolute tyrant. What would you like for this book to contribute to the national conversation under a Trump presidency as opposed to a Clinton one? Yeah, I like that question a lot because I think I, like many others, was was envisioning a kind of discourse around uh, a Clinton presidency in, in this kind of a book. And, and to be honest, I don't think Clinton and candidate Clinton did very much at all to suggest a confident pluralism. And oh, I was, almost nothing. I agree. Right, and to, in fact, signals to the contrary. Uh, and, and that's part of, I think, what hurt her in the election. So I, I, I had aspirations of engaging with these ideas. With, with a Trump administration, it's less clear to me. Well, I mean, let me just be blunt and say that when, when we talk about the aspirations of tolerance, humility, and patience, Trump as a person has shown none of those. In fact, he's, he's antithetical to all of them. Uh, and when we talk about the importance of inclusion and dissent, Trump has shown no tendency to recognize those concerns. So in some ways, even the basic premises of my argument in the book, I don't even think get off the ground with Trump the person. I'm, I'm open to being surprised differently, but I, I haven't yet seen anything to indicate an openness. Uh, I, I think there are people in Trump's circles who might be more open to some of these ideas. I think, uh, although I don't think he executed well in Indiana, I think that Mike Pence was thinking about related issues when he was engaged in the Indiana RIFRA debate. And I think that the the building blocks of confident pluralism might be available to someone like Mike Pence. But I, I also, I don't know him and I haven't seen a great indications that he's embracing these ideas either. So I do think that there are, uh, there are, this is an important time for government. It's an important time for wise 
and prudent people to be in government in all branches. And I hope that some of those people are, are open to engaging with these ideas. I think there are, are folks on both sides of the aisle in the Senate who are potentially uh, willing to discuss these kinds of things. I think there are people in the courts who, who would. And, and I'm hopeful that increasingly there'll be, there'll be people in the administration who will be uh, willing and open to discuss these ideas. Because one thing that does seem clear and probably clearer now than it was a couple months ago is that political power dynamics can change very, very rapidly. And anyone who hasn't internalized that lesson yet is is really sort of uh, pulling the, the wool over their uh, eyes right now. That I mean, the, the, the likelihood of a political backlash a few years from now, I think is pretty strong. And so this would be a great time for people who have some political alignments with the incoming administration to take very meaningful and very substantive gestures uh, toward pluralism in both their language and in the substantive policies they enact with an eye toward the future that is to come. And uh, I think actually arguments for pluralism can be strengthened in credibility when they're made from a position of political power. So for those people who are now ascending to power, I, I think this is an opportunity to act with integrity. Let's hope they do, huh? Well, yeah, I've great. been steering this conversation so far, but in the spirit of hospitality here on Christian Humanist Profiles, we like to let our guests have the final word. What haven't we talked about today that you'd like our listeners to know? Well, maybe let me ask you a question, and then I'll and then maybe I'll give you a final thought. But my, what what is it like for you know you working as a faculty member at a Christian university, thinking through these ideas, thinking about them six months ago versus today? Uh, what are the kinds of questions that are in your circles, and particularly as you think about your institutional future? Well, I hate to say this, but I think I think a lot of people at Christian colleges feel kind of relieved that. Trump won on on one level. I mean, I don't know anybody who's excited, but I, I think I think we're all a little relieved that Clinton didn't win because I think most of us had the sense that she was going to come after us. Whether whether she would have or not, I don't know, but I think most of us had that sense. So on on one level, I, I think, and in terms of our actual continued existence, I think a lot of people at Christian colleges breathed kind of a sigh of relief despite all the other things we're all worried about. Because, I mean, the truth is I don't think Trump is going to be good for religious liberties as a whole, even if he might not be terrible for Christian colleges. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I think that's right. And it's a fair point on the on the discrete policy question that was confronting Christian colleges and universities. That, that seems, I think a lot of people were saying something like, we have no idea what Trump would do, but we had a pretty clear idea what Clinton would have done. It would not have been good for the sake of institutions like yours. And so that's a, I think that's a, an understandable reaction when it comes to that particular policy point. And maybe that's a good way to segue into my final thought, which would be uh, for Christian institutions and Christian leaders and, and citizens especially, whether or not a, a particular outcome looks like it's going to be uh, more or less favorable to the political whims or to earthly kinds of things. My, my hope with this book and my hope particularly with Christians who engage with the book is is a fleeing from fear that would actually, with confidence in the gospel, lean inward toward people who differ from us and, and a recognition that we can do so 
regardless of the political consequences or the, or the political realities. One of the one of the things that's really fascinated, but also somewhat discouraged me in talking to, to, to many Christian audiences was this sense of fear, uh, fear of political consequences, fear of relativism, fear of other people, fear of compromising one's own beliefs. And it seems to me that starting with the model of Jesus, but also with lots of other uh, saints of the faith along the way, we have pretty good examples of people who in confidence have actually uh, not reacted in fear, but reacted with, with significant engagement for the sake of neighbor, for the sake of witness, for the sake of the gospel. And I think regardless of what politics brings us in the next month or year or 10 years, if we as Christians in this country can move less in a posture of fear and more in a posture of hope, then I think that's what we're primarily called to do. And that's that's good advice, regardless of who had won. I mean, I was I was afraid of both of them, I think. I was probably <laughs> more afraid of him overall, you, you know? But uh, I, I, I really felt like if she won, it might be the end of the Christian college in America, which I guess means the end of the Christian college in the West, basically. Well, but, I mean, maybe that's just that, fear. You know, you know what I mean? Like, I, I, don't, I don't know that that's a reasoned, well-thought-out position or whether it's just that I was afraid I would lose my paycheck. Right. Well, I mean, losing your paycheck is a legitimate fear. That's, that's, that's not to be uh, undersold. But I, I think overall, I think that really the meta point here is regardless of the consequences we face, personal, political, institutional, cultural uh, we're, we're guaranteed by our faith that that someone walks before us and that there is an end. We understand. I mean, we, we're living our entire lives and structuring our families and our kids around this hope. And so the, the least we can do is sort of continue to remind each other about it, I think. My, my hope is that if if there is some sort of Muslim crackdown, Christians will be the loudest voices against it. I'm not sure they will be. But, well, there, uh, there will be a split, and it's going to be an important split, and it's going to be important for Christian voices to stand up strongly in defense of American Muslims. Uh, and there are there are people like Russell Moore uh, and Robbie George and the Beckett Fund who are doing this, but but those voices are going to have to uh, speak over a lot of voices that are going to argue to the contrary, and that's going to be, I think. Uh, to the detriment of the church, of, of those voices who will see religious freedom as only important for Christians. Yeah, and, and the minute it becomes only important for Christians, it becomes not a reality, you know? Right, right. Because So maybe this administration is not going to stamp down on Christian religious freedom, and I'm, I'm not sure they won't. I, I, you know, he, what, what he's going to do is, is such a mystery to everybody. That's but right. If, yes. if this one doesn't, if it stamps down on anybody's, we're going to feel that eventually. That's right, yep. Anyway, <laughs> we've been talking with uh, John Anazio about his book, Confident Pluralism, Surviving and Thriving Through Deep Difference. It's out now from the University of Chicago Press. We'll have a link to that on the, web, uh, the show notes at the website, which is christianhumanist.org. Thanks again for coming on the show, John. Michael, this has been great. Thanks for having me. Christian Humanist Profiles is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. Thanks for listening. Hey, humanists, this is Nathan Gilmore. I want to tell you about an event that I'll be attending in Southern California, uh, January 19th through 21st. It is the Homebrew Christianity Theology Beer Camp. It's going to be a small event, limited number of tickets. 
Uh, so when you come, you'll be able to talk to podcasters like me, Jason Michelli from the Crackers and Grape Juice podcast, Trip Fuller from Homebrew Christianity, of course, a number of other shows that ought to be a lot of fun. There'll be some keynote sort of speakers. Trip Fuller has promised that he's going to try to get them off of their usual talking points and onto some new material. At any rate, uh, theologybeercamp.com is the link for that. We'll post that on the christianhumanist.org website and promote it on the Facebook page. And I'd be glad to see some of you if you're going to be in uh, Southern California that last weekend of the Obama years, uh, just before we roll over into the Trump administration. Again, January 19th through 21st, theologybeercamp.com. I hope to see some of you there. This is Nathan Gilmore. Thank you.